This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Jake Cantor. This week, a special show on a seismic fortnight for the industry. We'll run the rule over the dramatic commissioning changes at ITV and the BBC. Also on the agenda will be Channel 4's new chairman and trouble at Top Gear, as the ugly headlines continue for BBC 2's motoring show. Finally, we'll preview The Last Leg Boys' new Aussie adventure for Channel 4 and follow the rise of the superstar vloggers with BBC Three. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. In the studio this week, broadcast editor Chris Curtis and two Talking TV debuts. Uh, welcome broadcast senior reporter Hannah Ganajay-Stewart and broadcasting consultant Paul Robinson. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being dazzled and potentially outperformed by my two new colleagues on Talking TV. <laughs> so let's hope they don't do too well, otherwise I'll be... It doesn't take much, Chris. ...very quietly go. not to invite them back. <laughs> What's keeping you busy, Paul? Uh, our cards are noted and, and points made. Um, oh, I'm running around all over the place, you know, lots of air miles, um, launching animation, just, yeah, lots of work. I mean, very, very busy. January was not quiet, sadly. No, no, uh, it wasn't quiet at all, so... Uh, Let's kick off on that note, shall we? So the TV merry-go-round went into overdrive last week. Uh, first, we were walloped with the news that Peter Fincham was leaving ITV after eight years as director of television. He'll be replaced by ITV Studios boss Kevin Ligo, who will in turn hand over his duties to Deputy Julian Bellamy. Just 24 hours later, the BBC announced a shock commissioning restructure, closing the BBC One and BBC Two controller roles after 50 years. Uh, BBC One boss Charlotte Moore will assume control of all linear channels and iPlayer, while Kim Schillinglaw has taken redundancy. Uh, but that wasn't the last of it. Days later, broadcast revealed the departure of another bigwig as Janice Hadlow stepped down from her role as controller of special projects and seasons at the BBC. With the dust settling, fears are beginning to emerge that BBC Two could be left in the cold by the changes and the scale of potential content cuts is starting to become clear. Phew, I think that just about covers it. Busy couple of weeks back. We all knew this was going to be a big year for the BBC. 2016, charter renewal, finally sort of ratifying the funding deal so we can stop calling it a funding deal, start calling it a licence fee settlement. I don't think we realised, and I'm fairly sure that lots of people within the BBC didn't realise quite how swift and quite how uh, seismic these changes were going to be. I'm still struggling, to be honest, really struggling to get my head around the idea that from now... BBC Two doesn't have a controller. There is no one whose job it is solely to guide BBC Two. There's the BBC's second biggest television channel. I mean, with a budget, and you can cut this budget however you like it. 450 million quid is the published pub, published figure. They, the BBC, someone within the BBC somehow has decided that that role no longer should exist. And I think that that decision has been made quite quickly, quite swiftly. I don't know with what consultation with what people, and it just seems like a huge decision to make. Uh, and I'm, I'm struggling to get my head around it. How do you picked up on some of these concerns this week? Yeah, I think it's been uh, sort of on everyone's minds whether it could kind of go two ways. On the one hand, there's this need to move away from micromanagement. And in that respect, it might be interesting to leave a bit of control around that channel you know, step back a bit of control from that channel and see whether a channel editor can perhaps have a bit of a lighter touch in terms of decisions being made. Um, on the other hand, there is this real concern that the distinctiveness of the channel might be affected by not having a controller kind of steering it. So um, I guess it remains to be seen how much power will be delegated to those channel editors and how much 
of a role they'll have in defining the channel. Um, the worry is that although uh, Charlotte has sort of proved herself to be a strong leader and people seem to kind of have a great opinion of her within the BBC, it might well be that she ends up sort of having a BBC One Mark II kind of affair going on with the second channel instead of it being a channel in its own right with the distinctive character that it's built up for itself. And more, co- uh, more power for genre commissioners, we think. Yes, hopefully uh, that is the case or that seems to be the direction that things are going in. Again, there's this real kind of feeling that there's a lot of micromanagement and, uh, you know, decisions don't get up the chain very easily. Um, You know, producers are kind of hoping that that's going to open up as a result of this. But I think, again, the fear might be that all of that power gets concentrated in one place and, you know, there aren't enough discussions being made. The more conversations I have, the more I kind of feel that it's a cultural thing that needs changing if the culture of the BBC remains to kind of have very powerful people micromanaging every single decision, then any kind of process or structural change that they make potentially isn't going to make a hell of a lot of difference. It's going to be actually whether or not people feel that they can step back and let people have a bit more control lower down the levels. Paul, can you remember a time when so many totems of broadcasting have fallen in such a short space of time? No, I I don't. I don't think so. And um, uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, as you say, a very busy January. Uh, I worked at the BBC, so I have a couple of thoughts maybe that uh, I'll add to what's been said. I think this is about partially charter renewal. I think Tony Hall has to get the licence fee renewed. He has to get a decent um, uh, result. And I think the BBC are going to continue to cut and probably cut in a way that may potentially damage the BBC short term with the goal of long term getting the licence fee and getting the settlement that they want, uh, you know, within obviously the constraints that have been announced already, given they're now funding um, the uh, licence fee for pensioners. So I think this is about part of delivering the flatter organisational structure. Uh, whether it's going to work or not is a different question. And of course, the BBC is uh, well known for making a decision and then changing its mind in future. So I think, you know, we might see the challenge control is reinstated once the new charter starts. But we'll see. I mean, I think you make some very good points. Um, the other thing I'd say is this, I think, is part of a strategic move by the BBC to start thinking about the BBC as more than being a linear broadcaster. This is about the BBC saying, you know, we're going into a digital age. You know, we're aware of Netflix. We're aware the BBC has to have some sort of answer to Netflix. And what is that? Is a BBC brand maybe with, you know, on-demand content um, plus linear channels? I think this sort of says the linear channels are less important or going to be less important in the future of the BBC. And I think what's going to be very interesting to see how the commissioning structure changes, because what's critical for the BBC, I think, is to commission programmes that are distinctive, that are generally public service, that satisfy things the market can't do, that are therefore complementary to Netflix. Otherwise, why not have Netflix and forget about the BBC? And of course, the other part of this is we know the BBC, although they've not really publicly talked about it, is thinking internally about subscription models. Uh, They are very challenging for the BBC to generate the $4 billion a year that they get from the licence fee, but they are thinking about it. And if they are doing so, that will have a fundamental impact too on the way in which they commission and the way in which they deliver programmes. So I think it's about big thinking, future digital strategy, but also the short-term need to cut costs to get the licence fee. And we got a little insight into some of the discussions around that move away from linear, didn't we, this, this week, uh, in terms of the potential debate around BBC2 drama, Chris? There is this idea floating around that um, the BBC is very, very keen to inject more growth into iPlayer usage. I think that talks to some of the things exactly. that, 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 that Paul mentioned there. And that <clears throat> direction of travel is, is 
almost certainly that the uh, the original uh, commissioning pot for iPlayer will grow and grow and grow over time, and where that money comes from is up to debate. And one you know one radical proposal that we had mentioned to us was that um, BBC Two drama. Uh, funding would be shifted onto iPlayer. That's certainly the BBC say categorically isn't happening. You have to take that on, 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 in good faith and accept that that isn't the case, but it does show direction of travel. The, the, the other point I'd really like to make about the thing that makes me most uncomfortable about this, and I've hinted at it previously, is the BBC at the moment, and maybe it has to do this, but it still makes me feel uncomfortable, is massively playing favourites. It's playing favourites with BBC One, and it's playing favourites with drama. It's made drama preeminent above every other genre and it's made BBC One preeminent among uh, above every other uh, channel. And my concern with that is BBC One is, is the BBC's most mainstream offering. And at a time when it's being asked to assert its distinctiveness, it's safeguarding its biggest, most mainstream channel, where by its very nature, you're arguably likely to have least distinctive programming. That makes me very nervous. But you can see why it's happening, of course, because you can imagine James Purnell, uh, BBC Director of Strategy, saying to Tony Hall, look, BBC One's got a reach of 90%. In other words, basically everybody watches BBC One. Mm-hmm. So to maintain this licence fee, we have to focus on BBC One. And we'll forget all the rest around the, around the side for the moment. You know, getting the licence fee renewed, this might be the last licence fee, I think, possibly. We've said that before, but I think this might, mm-hmm. might be the last one, at least the last time the BBC's only funded by licence fee. BBC One, you can see why that comes into focus, Chris. I agree yeah. with what you say. No, no. No, I, and I don't disagree with that. My, my comeback to that would be BBC One is the BBC offering that is most like all other television that is out there. The least distinctive, yes. And, and so therefore you're, 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 you're playing into the hands of people that would say, well, the market's providing this uh, elsewhere. Yeah. So that makes me The other thing that occurred to me this morning as I was making my way down here is we're in this bizarre situation where I think the controllers of CBBS and CBBC have done an excellent job. They are very talented people and those channels perform very well those channels have controller level positions running them cbb's and cbbc but bbc2 doesn't this is some weird thinking going on here now maybe that will change over time i don't know but but it's odd that a channel that has a budget of 450 million at a swoop with very little consultation, as we understand it, even within senior figures in the BBC, it's just they just decide no more BBC. But I think you'll it. find that the children's channels probably will be disappearing in the next couple of years. I think you'll find they won't exist in two years' time. You know, there's ch- children are the most likely to use on demand. You know, the, the the volume of content consumed by the BBC amongst kids on demand mm-hmm. is greater than any other age group, mm-hmm. any other genre. So look, those channels probably won't continue. I think so, the other so point first. So, so do that no, first I agree. and change that first rather than changing BBC Two. Which... The, the other point I make is that actually there's a lot of talent here. I mean, I think losing Kate is a major loss of talent. People have said that. You know, what they have lost now, having lost these controllers, is the next generation of directors to television, the next generation of people who are going to run the whole thing. So by getting rid of this layer of management, you know, they're really damaging their future uh, talent creation and their future stars who are going to run the BBC. I think uh-huh. it's a sign of a sort of reactive BBC again, really. They're under a lot of pressure to cut look like they're making cuts Mm -hmm. they had Janice Hadlow kind of sat doing a job that seemed fairly ill-defined that people had been concerned about for a while and they had people making public calls at select committees and all over the place to kind of you know flatten the management structure Mm -hmm. so they've gone and done it what they haven't done is address the fact they still have a controller for BBC3 even though that's going online and is going to be a kind of different offering so you know Damien remains in the same role um, reporting to Mark Lindsay and then as you say you've got the children's channels remaining the same as well so it's kind of this sense that 
a reactive decision's been made and perhaps a kind of overall strategy that kind of joins all that up hasn't quite come together. And so you you answer one question and create a whole series of others in, in sort of doing that. Um, and, you know, from the conversations that I've had, that is not new at the BBC. It's something that's been going on for a while um, and is possibly something that they're going to have to think about. You know, one person I spoke to last week said if he, it's interesting that you brought up Netflix, um, you know, he said if you look at Netflix and HBOs and these kind of companies, the ones that the BBC are trying to kind of go head to head with increasingly as time goes on, you can summarise their business strategies in a couple of sentences and you know exactly what it is they're trying to achieve. You look at the BBC and you have to probably read reams and reams of explanation and uh, speak to dozens of people and it still remains fairly The day you can sum unclear. up the BBC in, in two sentences will be a very odd day. <laughs> exactly, but maybe um, you know that should be an objective. <laughs> uh, let's talk about ITV briefly. It, it's sort of got a bit lost in the talk around the BBC but there's seismic change at ITB and there will be a completely new direction probably under Kevin. Paul what have you made of, uh, of Kevin coming in? Well I think in a way ITB are really lucky I mean losing Peter Fincham is a big name a lot of experience being BBC One controller I mean Kevin Ligo tremendously experienced executive so I think ITB are quite lucky that they can actually immediately drop Kevin into the job and replace Peter It's a ready-made um, replacement It's a ready-made replacement and look he will do a very good job I mean obviously you know it's a question about commissioning and production but um, ITV Studios has been a, a massive um, success story in recent years that's um, reinvigorated ITV domestically but particularly of course you know you go to the market in Cannes and around the world and ITV's got a huge stand and a massive array of programmes to sell and really good stuff so uh, I think yes Kevin will bring a new direction new energy but I think he'll also continue the forward momentum and will continue the, the strong trajectory so I think for ITV although it's a big change I think it'd be pretty much business as usual Entertainment and factual, Chris, those are the two areas we think he's got the biggest job on his hands. Well, I've been saying that for some time, and then I <laughs> had a look at Jekyll and Hyde and Beowulf, and that, which are... Um, ITV uh, Studios products. Yeah, and, and neither of which have done terribly well. I mean, look, I'm not, not saying those shows were, were bad shows. With ITV, it's easier to make a success-fail distinction based on ratings, because that's kind of the game. So uh, it's probably arguably slightly too simplistic just to say drama's absolutely fine and, and, and factual and entertainment need addressing. But... You know, I think it's a completely fair assessment to say that what Fincham did at ITV was amazing. He took it at, at a really weak time um, and, and steered it through the depths of the recession, commissioned some fantastic, fantastic shows. And then, in, in my view, that um, it's it like a, you know, some sort of relatively cliched football analogy. The kind of manager ran out of steam. He kind of took them as far as he could go and it was time for a, for a fresh change. For Kevin, yeah, entertainment and, 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 and factual. Factual, I think, is struggling, definitely. I think the, the, the issue with factual is I'm not sure they know what works. I mean, um, The Garden are a pretty high-end factual uh, company, good reputation, everyone always admires their shows. Their, their big hope for a returning series on ITV, Saved, is doing really poorly at the moment, and it's you know, hard to see how that's going to come back. And you kind of think, well, if, if The Garden and Richard Klein and Peter Fincham can't quite uh, connect with factual audiences on, on ITV, then you know, where, where, where do you turn? So there's a big, big challenge there. But I think more pressing probably is entertainment in the sense that factual programming is a bit cheaper. It's not quite ITV's heartland in the same way. They could do with a fresh, some fresh hits. Just a few, there was a few little green seeds. Ninja Warriors sort of emerged. And, you know, we have to slightly recalibrate what success looks like. It's doing just over four on overnights um, uh, at the moment. And that 
you know, now that's a, that's a, a good success. So there are a few signs of a few. They're bringing back the hypnotism show that um, Tuesday's Child made a few little signs. You're back in the room. I, I, I've never, I've never <laughs> left, Jake. Um, but yeah, lots of work, lots of work to do there. Yeah, I mean, it will be, it will be interesting to see what they do with the X Factor and Britain's Got Talent, which are both up for renewal mm. this year. Uh, those negotiations will be high in Kevin's in-tray, I should imagine. One more quick point from him, then I'll mm. shut up and let some other people say something, <laughs> is there's this kind of received wisdom doing the rounds at the moment that they've signed The Voice and the X Factor will has been, you know, ratings been going down. They're going to get rid of the X Factor and replace it with The Voice. Simple. Well, X Factor was ITV's sixth biggest show last year. And you'll be pretty confident if you're going to axe your sixth biggest show that you've got something better to replace it with. Because look what happened with Dancing on Ice. They thought that was done. They got rid of it. And lo and behold, they haven't had anything anywhere near those ratings since they got rid of that. And the voice has come back on the BBC. And maybe it's slightly affected by the fact that people know it's moving to ITV. But its ratings are down on last. And, and um, Jake, your, your ratings grow. You'll probably correct me if I'm wrong. But I, I know it's a completely different time of year. But I don't think the voice is outperforming X Factor in terms of ratings. I think it's. I think the X Factor re- generally rates higher. So I it's having a, it's having a difficult year. I don't believe that it's as straightforward as oh, ITV is going to get you know going to going to drop the show. The balance of power between the relationship with Psycho and ITV might have shifted, but that's still a massive call to make. Okay, time now for our fortnightly dose of Channel 4 chat, as Ofcom appointed the broadcaster's replacement for Chairman Lord Burns this week. Uh, step forward, Charles Gurassa, the former Thompson Chief Executive and now Serial Non-Executive and Charity Trustee. Uh, Garassa CV boasts a bulging mix of public and private sector attachments and notable experience in the media sector where he has chaired distributor Parthenon, Virgin Mobile and Love Film. Uh, Paul. Do you want to kick us off on this? What do you make of the appointment? Yeah, well, I think this might be quite a smart appointment. I mean, obviously, the whole future of Channel 4 is now up for discussion and debate. And I guess Charles is going to be the guy who probably is going to end up uh, deciding, recommending, uh, agreeing uh, or whatever uh, what the future is. I mean, he has got, as you say, Jake, a good experience. I mean, he's overseen Virgin Mobile's flotation. Um, he was chairman of Love Film before it was acquired uh, by Amazon. So he's got some understanding of that entertainment business. Um, and so... Uh, and he's also been a non-exec at, um, at Merlin. So he has got some entertainment background, but critically, he's a business guy. What I thought was very interesting was the quotation he gave. And he said, I'm exciting to be joining Channel 4, which has a unique place in UK broadcasting. We all agree with that. And I think we all want to keep that the, the case. Um, I look forward to exploring Channel 4's important contribution in a rapidly changing sector. So that tells me he is going to think about the role of Channel 4 and whether the original role uh, when Channel 4 was constituted is still uh, still flies, essentially as a publisher broadcaster, whether there is a new Channel 4, whether there's a new model, whether it's a, uh, uh, going to be privatised and so on. So I think he's going to think those things through very carefully. Um, this is obviously a very, very important uh, moment for Channel 4. And I think uh, maintaining the uh, the valuable contribution that Channel 4 adds to the, the market in the UK is critical. So I think it's a smart appointment. I think he's a, a grown-up, um, clearly understands both the editorial and the commercial side of the business. I think he'll be central to the future of the broadcaster. Chris, you've been following this this week. What you can't do from this appointment is jump to any conclusions. This is not, you know, they haven't appointed a Tory grandee who's got a history of privatising organisations. Neither have they appointed someone who's made public statements that says, you know, Channel 4 is is a great organisation and and tinker with it over my dead body. So we're not, in in the immediate short term, we're sort of, 
none the wiser. It's an Ofcom appointment, but ratified by by government. Government clearly believes they can work with this guy. The conversations I would suggest he's pretty open-minded. It's really hard, you know, it's really hard to know what's going to happen in Channel 4. You speak to 10 different people and you get 10 different predictions. Um, and the person that you really want to speak to is John Whittingdale. And he's obviously keeping his cards keeping relatively his cards, As he is on everything, Anna. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he's, uh, it's all a bit of a guessing game everywhere you look at the moment, really, isn't it? There's sort of um, massive, massive change going on everywhere, but very hard to tell where it's all going to wind up. In terms of this, I think it's kind of just hopeful that he'll be a bit of a champion for the channel, isn't it? And that there'll be some kind of move in terms of standing up for Channel 4 and being a bit open about what, what the needs of that channel are and, you know, what, what it's providing to the, to the country as a broadcaster because perhaps that opinion hasn't been um, very forthcoming. Some brilliant figures this week on the uh, contribution the creative industries make to the UK economy. I think a record £89 billion. And you sort of wonder when the DCMS is publishing official figures like that, why it is minded to tinker with the likes of Channel 4, the BBC and Terms of Trade. It's hard to hard to see the logic. I mean, it, 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 with the Channel 4 privatisation issue, you've either got to think it's one of two things. Either they just want the cash and they think they can make a decent amount of money and what constitutes a decent amount of money is big, big question up, up for debates. Or they think the market can do it better. And... If you're sincere about preserving the remit, as John Mattingdale seemed to be, it's hard to think of a way in which the the market is going to do a better job than a not-for-profit organisation of, of preserving the, the, the remit. That's not to say Channel 4 is perfect and couldn't do things better, and there are things it does that, that you know piss people off, and there are things it does that raise eyebrows. But, you know, can the mar- will the market preserve the remit any better? That's yet to be proven, I think. Okay, back over to BBC Two now, as the reboot of Top Gear continues to be dogged by negative headlines. Uh, There's talk of disharmony between the BBC and the production team, Uh, Chris Evans being unable to drive and talk at the same time, and contradicting rumours about co-presenters. It's quite hard to know what to believe. So, some facts. Uh, We know that both executive producer Lisa Clark and influential script editor Tom Ford have left Top Gear just months before it is due on air. Broadcast also revealed last week that Evans has vetoed the BBC's preferred replacement for Clark and the broadcaster has returned to the drawing board to find a senior producer. Uh, Hannah, stripping away the sort of melees of headlines, the facts, those those bare facts, don't sound great. Do no, they? it's not looking good at the beginning, it all seemed quite hopeful. You know, they'd brought on a producer who had a long-standing relationship with Chris Evans. They had obviously were going to have some chemistry, and that seemed like it was going to be a really good good ingredients for the future of the show. Really, to have that, that's obviously changed. It appears that Chris wants to have a lot more control, and you know, there's this kind of fear about that kind of uh, showrunner sort of thing, slash where, presenter. yeah, slash presenter thing, which which can sometimes just you know not really work. There's just too well, much. Well, apparently, it was outlawed. Uh, after the Ross Brand Saxgate yeah. debacle, yeah, this is a worry again. More, more slightly controversial people, kind of in positions where you know the thing about Top Gear is that it's always had that kind of controversial edge, and I suspect that there is a uh, desire to keep that. It's part of the character of the show, but how much controversy you want before it comes back to air? I don't know whether they can afford much more. Very really. true. Oh, James May said this week that these headlines are being concocted by Chris Evans because he wants the show to come in with as as low as expectations as possible 
and then surprise everyone. Chris is a smart guy. That's a a great, great theory. I mean, I I would say this. I mean, taking over from those three was always going to be a tough call. I mean, it was Mm. very successful and the spotlight was always going to be on it. So every little... Um, faux pas, every little sort of um, bump in the road is going to be you know, seized on. So that's the first thing I'd say. Um, the second thing I'd say is, look, um, Chris Evans is um, not just a presenter. I mean, he is an ideas factory. I mean, I, I brought Chris into Radio 1 when I was managing editor at Radio 1 when he, when he did the um, Too Much Gravy show taking him from Schofield. He is an energy. I mean, he his production teams work like hell. I mean, they are incredible. He's incredibly demanding, but that's why he produces such good uh, material. You listen to the Radio 2 show he does, and it's full of stuff all the time. That's because Chris's brain is working all the time, and he's demanding of his team that he produce new stuff. So with, with Chris coming in as presenter, he was always going to be a central force in the editorial direction of that show. Um, I would say that this is going through a transition from being a uh, production team-led show to a host-led show and it's going to be Chris's vehicle now whether Chris makes it work or not is another thing but I'd put my money on him making it work it's his name is on that on that uh, the front of that show you know everyone knows it's Chris Evans Um, he is a a brilliant guy he is a very good guy I think it will be fine but clearly there are you know there there are bumps on the road. Is he as divisive as some headlines make out? Well Chris used to be uh, challenging to work with uh, that's the euphemism. He has calmed down massively. I think now, if you talk to his team, they actually love him. And they're not just saying that because he's told them to say that. They do. And, you know, when I've seen Chris recently, he is now, you know, nearly 50 um, with huge experience. He understands relationships are important. It's not just about getting the right show, but you've got to take people with you. Um, I think he will be uh, taking a very careful line. And look, there's no sense of any rift between BBC senior management and Chris. And that would have been the case in the past. So I suspect that actually he's playing a, a, a tough line, you getting what he wants editorially, but I suspect it will go on air reasonably harmoniously. Probably won't have the same ratings as the initial uh, as the replacement, but I think it will over time build. Interesting. Where do you think we'll end up, Chris? I sort of suspect the show will probably end up being okay as well. Like I don't, I'm not angsty about is Top Gear going to come back and the on-screen product will be hopeless. I just sort of don't believe that will happen. They are clearly having a few teething problems getting through it is quite hard sometimes to um uh work out what is tabloid headline and what is the the myth the 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 mystique around certain figures and what and what is real and i'd be lying if i said i on a personal level it's not something i've followed on a personal level with with in huge detail I suspect it will be okay the product will probably be, 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 be pretty good I expect it will crackle with energy will it be an easy show to produce no definitely not um, I think probably now we're just coming to realise the scale of the task that is hey you've got to reinvent a show BBC Two's biggest show by a mile one of the BBC Worldwide's biggest exports around the world by a mile the the driving force behind that's gone. The exec and the three presenters have gone. Start from scratch. Well, surprise, surprise, that comes with a few challenges. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but you've got to do it up against the last three presenters moving to Amazon and basically producing the same Arrival show. show. So it's not uh, as straightforward, really, as just reinventing Top Gear. I think if you step back from TV land and talk to people that watch TV, they're calling the Amazon show the new Top Gear, yeah. not 
Top Gear. So they've instantly got a perception problem amongst audiences who are already looking to Amazon for the new Top Gear when actually the BBC still has it. So. I think Hannah's totally right. And of course, you know, so, the, so in terms of um, outside the UK, BBC Worldwide, they've now got a competitor in Amazon. So they're going to be selling both shows into the market. Um, Chris Evans has been well received at the Worldwide showcases and the various markets he's been to. So I think that augurs well. But the BBC have now got a challenge, as mm. Hannah says. Yeah, Fascinating stuff. I'm sure we'll be talking about it lots more on Talking TV over the coming months. Uh, but for now, that's your news. My thanks to Paul, Chris and Hannah. OK, on to some previews now. Still with me on the Talking TV sofa is Chris Curtis, Hannah Ganajay-Stewart and Paul Robinson. Uh, we will start with BBC Three's The Rise of the Superstar Vloggers, uh, produced by All Three Media's digital indie Little Dot Studios. This documentary reveals how teenagers have become global superstars through personal YouTube posts. Uh, here hosts Jim Chapman, himself a vlogger, heads to Brighton to meet Alfie Days and asks when he knew his videos had gone from a hobby to something more. I was working like four hours a week, uh, just like a weekend job in a clothes shop in town. Um, and the first time my YouTube earnings earned me more than the clothes shop, I went into work the next day and just handed in my notice. Which a normal person would be like, oh, cool, I earned double, like, I earned YouTube and I earned the clothes shop. I was just like, okay, if I sat the clothes shop, then I can put double the time into my YouTube. So I just did that. Life for you has kind of gone a bit crazy recently, right? You're a wax figure in Madden Two Swords. My hair look, looks better than real life. <laughs> now that looks good. Can you do that on here? <laughs> yeah, I think all of us have been like we've been offered and done some crazy stuff mm. that like we never ever expected. I'm in blooming Madame Two Swords. I'm in Madame Two Swords. Like I've got a wax figure of me, and you can go and see it in London. That is insane. Uh, so we've had the rich kids of Instagram on on Channel 4. Is this just the rich kids of YouTube? I felt like it was a showcase of vloggers, of digital talent to come. You know, it was kind of like, be introduced to these this kind of uh, collection of people you may not have heard of yet, if you're kind of over 20. I, don't I know. guess that, that was the idea, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, they I think... Introduce I, different audiences to, this, to this weird world where, you know, they've got this whole different level of fame that people are largely unaware of exactly exactly and it and it did that well it gave me an insight into a few people that i didn't know about <laughs> before i thought it was quite funny when i looked at um jim's uh youtube videos afterwards he doesn't wear glasses in those so it was like he'd got sort of like a broadcast persona he's, become a he's got a linear tv persona <laughs> <laughs> with his specs on um but yeah it was it 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 was interesting. It went into some weird areas, I thought, you know, how you sort of got some very serious topics arising kind of in the middle there with sort of domestic abuse and... Um, Suicide. Yeah, this kind of stuff, which I was, I was sort of surprised when it arrived at that point. I don't know what you thought, but um, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag of... Cool, what topics. did you make of it? Uh, I thought it was fine. I mean, the production values were fine. You know, it was well produced, well put together. Um, it sort of lacked insight for me. I mean, you know, there was a statement at the beginning that the vloggers are the most influential people on the planet, but that was never, ever supported with any evidence. Yeah. I mean, it was thrown out there at the beginning. And then I thought, well, OK, they're doing some quite interesting stuff, but they're talking mainly about, you know, travelling at airports and, and what they've had for lunch and, you know, very mundane stuff. Um, and what I would like to have got a sense of is why are people watching these people in such huge numbers and why 
are these guys, you know, becoming so uh, significant to their target audience? But, you know, there was no insight there. And the other thing I think is, the other question I'd ask is, is this going to continue through older life? I mean, this is a younger audience. I'm double their age and more. You know, will people who are 40 and 50 be doing this? Or is this just a sort of cult phenomenon? And there was no real examination of those issues. So I was left, it was a bit like a Chinese meal. Nice at the time, but there was nothing left at the end. (laughs) Chris? I don't think it could work out whether it was trying to tell people like us around the table, hey, there's this thing going on and you should be aware of it, in which case it needed more um, stats and it needed to be more like a, you know, for want of a better phrase, grown-up documentary, or whether it was for a BBC3 audience who know who all these people are anyway and are there two and a half million subscribers, in which case you don't need the whole first half of the show, basically, the whole first half of the film. So it fell into two... The I thought it, were, it had buried the lead, this show. The end bit was interesting when they started talking about... You know, the guy who's a bit of a kind of almost like a dapper laughs on, on um, what was his name, Sam Pepper or something, yeah. and he's a bit divisive. And all sorts of gender politics going on. You know, there were some interesting things. People um, uh, having inappropriate relations with their fans. You know, that you know older people and younger fans. You know, there was some 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 interesting stuff. They didn't talk about the, how you make money from YouTube. They said, oh, you put some ads up there. They showed a little bit of where these people are sort of promoting products, where it felt to me a bit like, mm, you wouldn't have that on telly. It was it was murky. Here are these people, and they're saying, oh, I really like these. These are my favourite type of biscuits. Go on, I mean, I'm being a bit facetious, but go and buy these ones. You'll really enjoy I, There were all sorts of things that were just scratched on the surface and never never went into deep enough. The, the thing that I found a bit irritating as well is that it, it sort of said, give yourself a camera and get yourself going and, and you can all of a sudden have millions of followers. Mm. There's a bit more to it than that. And I don't think they really explored that. And there clearly is a bit of privilege here among the among these teenagers. They have sophisticated recording equipment, good editing, and you know there, there's a whole sort of veneer and uh, professionalism to their work, which just didn't come through, I didn't think. Yeah. And, and the other thing, I think that's totally right, the other thing is there's thousands and thousands of vloggers. Uh, the point is that a very few are making lots of money. Most of them are making nothing. Mm. Yes. And that was completely glossed <laughs> over. And they, they asked one of the guys, why is it that you've got millions of subscribers? And his answer was, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's fine. Maybe the guy doesn't know, but the, you know, he's got Not so helpful sort of, to us, the audience, stuff, yes, But someone's got to start telling me yeah. why. Well, and they, they kept saying, oh, if you're really passionate about it you can you too can be a vlogger and I thought no you can't in the same way that people are passionate about playing football but not everyone plays the Spurs or you're passionate about being a musician you're not on top of the I think there was a tiny bit of insight about why those audiences come to me there was one point where um, Tyler uh, Oakley Tyler Oakley was it said um, I had no role models growing up because traditional media is the gatekeeper of the types of people that you can see and I sort of felt like that was a bit of a kind of this is where I felt that the show was kind of almost talking to the TV industry, not to its audience in some way, saying, hey, look, there's all these people, you know, BBC Three itself is going online. It's taking a digital route itself. It needs to tap into mm. these vlogging channels. It needs to tap into this kind of talent. Dom Smales was a talking head on yeah, the show yeah, yeah. Um, describing Regular how... Broadcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Describing how this talent has come to light, what they can do, what they can bring to the industry. So I think that, that, you know, in some ways it was a little bit meta. It was kind of looking in on itself a little bit and, uh, you know, possibly 
giving us a bit of a message about the direction that BBC Three wants to go into and what it needs to do to achieve its digital future itself. Switch overnight on the 16th of Feb. Yes, it's coming. Finally. What was your favourite BBC Three linear show? Can I have two? Can I say be, being human on a um, on a drama uh, level because it sort of it got in on that whole supernatural. It basically it made vampires sexy before everyone else tried to make vampires sexy before Twilight came along. And everything else. At least one big star. Well, there, I mean, there's a chap I takes his top off quite a lot. Yeah, that's the one. And now, like, so Russell Tovey is yeah, kind of the smaller. And the other one that I loved on BBC Three, which is an absolute perfect example of its factual television at best was a show called Blood, Sweat and Takeaways. And what they did was they, 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 they took globalisation and or nutrition and food safety and health and all these kind of different things that you would think young people would have literally no interest in. And by finding good cast and by doing it in an interesting way, they opened up. It was, it was, it was as good a factual television as you, you'll see. Quick favourite, Paul? Oh, it was Being Human too, but I'm afraid I tend to watch it for Family Guy. Okay. Mighty Boosh was mine. Oh, the Mighty Boosh. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a good choice. Yes. <laughs> Gavin Stacey. That's why I didn't tell yeah, anyone before we started recording. Re- pinch, pinch anyway, uh, now time for a little trip to Australia with the boys from Channel 4 Entertainment hit The Last Leg. Uh, the Last Leg Down Under follows Adam Hills, Josh Widdicombe and Alex Brooker's trip to the Outback over two episodes. Uh, produced by Open Mike and North One. In this clip, the boys drop by a cattle ranch to meet cowgirl Shona. Hello, I'm Alex. How are you? You all right? How are you? I'm Josh. Nice to meet you. How's it going? So these cattle have come from the Queensland Gulf. There's 2,000. 2,000? And they're getting trucked this afternoon and they'll go on a ship to Indonesia. Right. Bloody hell. Yeah. And then they'll be made into buxo balls, like little meatballs. Right. They're not aware of that, though, are they? They wouldn't be thinking I'm probably going to end up as a buxo ball. (laughs) I don't know. The look on some of their faces, I think they know. (laughs) Be careful because there might be some wild ones in here. Okay. So be ready to run and climb if you need to. Are you joking? (laughs) No, I'm serious. A bit of the top gear about this, I thought. Paul, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I thought, God, I, I wish someone would insult me on television, and I'd get a trip like this, you know, because whenever I go to Sydney, I go via Singapore, which is a lot less interesting than going via Darwin. Uh, I thought, I mean, hey, it didn't quite deliver on the idea of getting revenge, but it's just a fantastic sort of road trip show, isn't it? I mean, brilliantly executed, you know, full of energy, full of fun. I just want to be there and do it. I want to do that three thousand mile trip. It just took me there. I think it had this ability to take you to the place really, really well, and I, I enjoyed it for that they've got such a good relationship such good chemistry i mean we hear that word so often don't we and that and that to be honest there's two things that made me think of top gear as well one is it was quite nicely shot i mean i guess their budget wouldn't be a top gear budget but the shots of the outback and the desert in the northern territory driving along these massive roads it was nice it was you know looked uh, looked looked beautiful and then it was that sort of i hate the word god to use the word banter makes me feel a bit (laughs) but it was the banter that their repartee their their chemistry you know it it does feel like you kind of want to be in their gang they are the miss fits these guys right but they're happy with that and they play up to it and it was this juxtaposition between these three misfits and the kind of tough macho aussie world and yeah it was fun it was entertaining normally travel logs make you make me sort of slightly want to poke my own eyes out but this and um and travel man on channel four i think are two really good contemporary examples 
Interesting. I'm going to go slightly the other way on this one. <laughs> I did. I got. How the, dare you disagree? <laughs> I'm disagreeing. I got. Boys, I got the. Yeah. yeah, maybe it is. I got the. I got the Top Gear thing. I sort of felt that, and I think maybe that was a bit of a shame because I think that made it not seem like it was delivering quite for me a little bit, you know. And I'm used to them on the last leg, kind of being really sharp, witted, really funny, kind of laugh out loud funny a lot of the time. And I didn't get this this time round. I didn't feel that they were. I didn't think the chemistry was quite there, actually, in the same way as sort of you normally feel with those guys. So maybe as the series progresses, that will kind of develop a bit more and you'll get, you you know, they're out of their context at the moment, aren't they? So perhaps I'll feel kind of as time goes on. But I don't know. It wasn't quite... They had a bit of a falling out at one point. They well, did. They? It was Adam a, Hills and Alex Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of tears and yeah. kind of, you know, upset, which that's not what I want to see from those guys. I just want to see them being funny. <laughs> yeah. So, um, But if it works with Channel 4, you could see them doing more, couldn't you? Oh, definitely. I hope they do. I really would like them to. Yeah, yeah I think so. Definitely. I, you know, I see where Hannah's coming from. Look, it's not going to reinvent the, the genre, but it was fun. It was entertaining. It mixed the comic with the slightly sort of deeper, um, a few sort of social issues and, and, and their relationships. And yeah, it was a sort of, a, you know, an enjoyable hour's watch, I would say. The Last Leg Down Under begins tonight. That's Friday on Channel 4 at 10 p.m. Uh, and that's your lot for this episode big thanks to Chris Curtis Hannah Ganajay-Stewart and Paul Robinson I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill goodbye you've been listening to Broadcast talking TV recorded at Maple Street Studios